Back in early part of November, we uh, broached the topic of using your liberty. And uh, at that time, what we were trying to address was the issue of not judging one another in debatable matters, those things upon which Christians often disagree. And uh, I need to say a couple of things. One is that I don't consider that we have a particular problem in this area, but I do think it is an important area to consider generally as believers uh, because these kinds of things can come up at any time in a lot of different contexts. Um, The other thing I want to do is tie up a loose end from that teaching about judgment. Um, I think it's important that we don't go too far in this not judging thing, okay? Because a lot of people, when they would like more freedom or license than the the Word of God really allows, will sometimes say, don't judge, period. That's really the only commandment. When in reality, you and I judge all the time in matters great and small. In fact, the word used in the text, the Greek word krino, means in its most basic sense to make a decision. And so it's, it's pretty impossible to avoid the issue of judgment. Not only do we judge when we put on a tie or a, or a skirt in the morning, the girls put on skirt. Um, but frankly, I'm sure most of us will cringe when the faith healer on TV slays the cripple in the spirit and then he runs off stage. And parents will oftentimes uh, tell a young teen, no, you can't go to a particular movie because we judge it inappropriate. Uh, when Jesus said, judge not, lest you be judged, he did not mean we don't use the word of God and, frankly, common sense to make judgments about consequential matters upon which the word is clear. Uh, He meant that that believers should be patient, slow to judge, never of a critical spirit, especially about matters that are debatable. Uh, However, if something is wrong by Scripture and we don't make a judgment, if evil is never called as such, the Bible is just an interesting read but pretty much worthless in real-life application. Uh, We just have to understand that we will be judged by the same standards with which We judge. So if you make a public or even a private judgment uh, about something, just be sure that you're not guilty of the same thing, if maybe even in a less obvious form. When Jesus was criticized for healing on the Sabbath, he drew the line well. In John 7, it it recounts, where Jesus says, if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, 
so that the law of Moses will not be broken. Why are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. And somehow the picture that I have of Jesus overturning the tables of the money changers in the temple is not one of, a, of an actionless, non-judgmental wimp. Moving on, today what I'd like to do is tackle a little bit more difficult subject of where we left off in Romans 14, that's where we're going to start, and we're going to address the next issue that Paul addresses. Uh, last time we stopped at verse 12, and we're going to pick it up right there at verse 13 in Romans 14. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block, my word would be bolder for today, in a brother's way. In other words, while we are to avoid judgment in these debatable areas, we have an additional caution to avoid creating a problem for another believer by careless practice or exhibition of our liberty. Continuing in verse 14, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. In this context, meat is just meat. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. And we covered in the last teaching about this judgment thing, in the first part of chapter 14, how believers, some believers are strong and others weak in certain areas, and neither should judge the other in those gray matters. Uh, we're not to judge someone who is sensitive about a particular practice. Even if we're sure we're right, these things should not inhibit Christian fellowship. Primarily, we will each give account to our eternal master, the weak for his and the strong for his. Therefore, we don't need to get into the business of judging things that are not clear. But at this point in the text, Paul changes focus from respect and avoidance of judgment between weaker and stronger brethren to the responsibility of the stronger. Beyond not judging... The stronger is to make sure he does not put a stumbling block, a boulder, in the way of a brother by his acts or even omissions, each of which may be fine according to the liberty of the stronger, but not that of the weaker. Now, before we go down this road, I think it's important that we ask a fundamental question of ourselves and answer it honestly to ourselves. What is, yes, we have this liberty in Christ, but what is my ultimate goal? Is it to lead others to or closer to Christ? 
or is it to exercise my liberty for my own pleasure? If the latter, then the, the rest of this message and the text that we will go over probably won't have a lot to offer you. Uh, Matthew Henry puts it this way, The business of our lives is not to please ourselves, but to please God. That is true Christianity, which makes Christ all in all. Though Christians are of different strength, capacities, and practices in lesser things, yet they are all the Lord's. All are looking and serving and approving themselves to Christians. We must avoid saying or doing things which may cause others to stumble or to fall that which may be an occasion of grief or of guilt to our brother. Let's continue on in verse 16 of chapter 14. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Now, you and I may know in our hearts that some act is perfectly fine. But if we're aware that others see it differently and we don't accommodate them by denying ourselves some pleasure or liberty, or liberty while in their presence, we could create a needless problem for this perhaps weaker brother or perhaps even within the larger body of Christ. Now, we can't stop people from speaking evil, but we should certainly not intentionally or even carelessly give them any reason to speak evil of us. Again, Matthew Henry says, We must deny ourselves, in many cases, what we may lawfully do, when our doing it may hurt our good name. Our good often comes to be evil spoken of because we use lawful things in an uncharitable or selfish manner. Let's continue in verse 19. So then, we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. Okay, try to discern what is, what's going on here. The, a mature believer, as mature believers, we are to seek peace and building up of fellow believers. And if I'm convinced that something is allowable under God and my brother, even one who is clearly weaker in the faith and understanding, if he believes the same thing is wrong, then the visible exercise of my liberty becomes a boulder, a stumbling block for him that may tempt him to partake in the same liberties against his own conviction. Now, that compromise brings about a background of condemnation in the conscience of the weaker brother. 
Matthew Henry said this, Many wish for peace and talk loudly for it who do not follow the things that make for peace. Meekness, humility, self-denial, and love make for peace. Many, for meat and drink, destroy the work of God in themselves. Nothing more destroys the soul than pampering and pleasing the flesh and fulfilling the lust of it, so others are hurt by willful offense given. Now, I know that this question raises a number of hazy areas, a number of dilemmas, perhaps, in application. And this is where maturity and discernment come come in. A, A strong believer may rationalize something like this, thinking, you know, I'm convinced that this activity is perfectly okay, Uh, And if I were to practice this thing in private only, but not in front of someone else, might I not be guilty of hypocrisy? Therefore, I'm going to consider this particular thing, I don't want to be a hypocrite, I'm going to consider it a pebble, and I'll just walk over it and consider that that's my brother's problem. Well, why don't we take a look at what Paul said in addressing one of the stumbling blocks of his day and see if we can discern in 1 Corinthians 8 anything about how we should apply his teaching on walking in liberty, how we discern between what's a boulder and what's a pebble. In 1 Corinthians 8, we address the issue of meat that had been offered to idols. You know, you've heard... This is probably referred to in a number of places in Scripture. In other words, guilt by association. Starting at the beginning of the chapter. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. Now that's a significant verse. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things are and we exist for him and one Lord Jesus Christ by whom are all things and we exist through him however not all men having this knowledge have this knowledge but some being accustomed to the idol until now eat food as if it were sacrificed to idol and their conscience being weak is defiled and this of course refers to a new believer who sees the mature believer eating meat without apparent concern for its prior use in the idol worship. Okay, let's continue in verse 8. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, you who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience... If he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols. In other words, 
the believer practicing his liberty carelessly sets up an internal conflict in younger, less mature believers. That young believer still doesn't comprehend how eating meat involved in idol worship is not wrong. Yet he sees the mature believer doing just that, which, is in, which encourages him to follow that example without knowing why it's not wrong. And if he does, and then reasons in his limited understanding, well, I sure thought that was wrong, but you know, it didn't hurt. In fact, it was pretty tasty, or it was a lot of fun, or pick the adjective that you want to use to describe the particular activity. And maybe I've been all wrong about these boundaries of the Christian life. Maybe next I'll try, you fill in the blank. You see, the key is that this young believer lacks understanding and discernment in application. And not only by following for that has he sinned, remember what Paul said in Romans 14, 23, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not of faith, and whatever is not of faith is sin. But in addition to that, he may go on to some more clearly destructive sinful activity because of this newfound but totally misunderstood concept of liberty which we have carelessly exhibited in his, in his presence. Now, let's be honest. It's not like there is no law of gravity or law of sin. We all tend to gravitate towards sin. And some weaker believers may just find it a little easier to move in that direction when given an example that we don't understand. Verse 11, For through your knowledge he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. In other words, the strong, who understands the concept of liberty, causes the weak, who cannot yet grasp that same concept, to violate his conscience by example. Did Christ deny himself and his own liberty for our brothers and sisters? You know, the rather basic liberties of to live and breathe and avoid excruciating pain and early death? Is he really asking us too much to deny ourselves for those same fellow believers so as to refrain from, frankly, any indulgence that we may feel free to do under the Lord? But Paul doesn't stop there. Verse 12. And so, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you... The mature believer strolling along in his liberty, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Okay, we've gone on a little while. Let's go back to the hypocrisy question. First, did Paul stop eating meat when he said this? I don't think so. He speaks here using the conditional if rather than the causative because a brother sees you eating meat and that causes your brother to stumble. Eating meat generally isn't prohibited by Scripture, so I don't think Paul's giving any new command here. 
Rather, I see Paul saying this, I will do whatever I must do to avoid a stumbling block for a weaker brother, even if that means only meeting eat meat in private, not in front of him. But if that doesn't work, I'm willing to give up meat altogether if that's what it takes to keep my brother from sinning against his own conscience. Now, in this passage in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul is addressing our example to other believers. In 1 Corinthians 9, the very next chapter, he turns to the broader question of the world. And we'll pick it up there in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Now, why would Paul who introduced this idea of Christian liberty to all of us, can, why would he state that he was not going to use that Christian liberty as much as possible? Why? Because Paul got the bigger picture. He would do or refrain from doing whatever was necessary for the paramount goal of bringing the lost to Christ and weaker brothers closer to Christ. Now, question. If eating meat uh, offered to idols in public, which is nowhere else discouraged in Scripture and causes no harm, if that's to be avoided, then what does that say about a lot of the activities about which Christians disagree today? Peter agreed that the world will judge us based upon what they see, not what is in our hearts, and that freedom necessarily involves uh, a limitation, self-control. 1 Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Okay, within that context, Peter ends with this in verse 16. Act as free men, but do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. So, to sum it up, it seems that we have this liberty in Christ, and we should use it. But wisely, carefully, circumspectly, as bond slaves. Now, how's that for an oxymoron? Be as free as a slave. 
thankfully, we are slaves to the greatest, most loving, and forgiving master of the universe. Now, today we were to address liberty amongst boulders and pebbles, and I've got to admit, I kind of emphasize the boulders. And what are those boulders? Well, last time we talked about some of the, uh, some of the areas. I can't pretend to know all of them. Uh, and then the ones we talked about then were recognizing certain days as holy, alcohol, worship practices, diet, possible additions might include dress, entertainment choices, or just plain use of time. I know that it helps to go through a real example, so let's take a look at one. How about dancing? Okay? Uh, Now, views may differ even within this body about the subject, but I'm aware that some Christians would shun all forms of dancing. There's a few. Now, that's, I think, a pretty difficult position to defend, given what Scripture says. The Psalms, Thou hast turned for me my mourning into dancing. Let them praise his name in the dance. Uh, Praise him with the timbrel and dance. Praise him with stringed instruments. In Ecclesiastes, it says, There's a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. On the other hand, There are references in Scripture to dancing which are not very positive. You know, when Moses came down from the mountain and saw the the children of Israel dancing around the golden calf, I I think we can say he was a little bit upset. Okay? When Herod watched his stepdaughter dance, the texts in the Gospels say that her, her dancing pleased him to the point that he offered her whatever she would ask. Now, in, in my mind, that is a picture of lust. So, frankly, dancing is a real gray matter because it can be either a joyous celebration or even a praise to God or it can be a temptation to sin. Where are the lines? I'm just going to give you my opinion, Okay. Certain dancing and music that accompanies it clearly call up ungodly passions, whether it's burlesque or dancing with the bimbos on TV. Okay? I'm just being honest with you. That's the intent. Some dancing, because of certain physical touch alone, can be appropriate or inappropriate, depending on the participants. An amorous, tightly held slow dance might be fine for a husband or wife on celebrating an anniversary or maybe something who's just about to get married, but I think it's a little bit much for young teens with raging hormones, in my opinion. Other dance is likely harmless even with physical touch. You know, square dancing and the Virginia Reel that the homeschoolers held last night as an example, okay? Now, what do you do with something like that? You know, homeschoolers, you know, include a wide spectrum of, uh, of beliefs and backgrounds, but there is within their ranks some pretty conservative folks. And I personally would not invite uh, a brother homeschooler to an event like I went to last night if he held a, you know, a no-dancing viewpoint. 
simply because I wouldn't want to violate his conscience and, and present that. However, at the same time, uh, I did not hesitate to take the hand of other women all the, from the age of 56 down to 6, uh, multiple other women I touched last night. Uh, you know, you have to take everything in context. Now, let me just ask, if any of the things we've talked about today on this non-exhaustive list have been pebbles for you in the past, my hope is that you will consider looking at these areas in a different light. Now, as for pebbles, I do believe there are some. In other words, matters that are so insignificant that we can, in good conscience, simply walk over them. Uh, however, I have conveniently run out of time so as to avoid having to draw that line for you today. Now, a uh, non-objective but perhaps helpful guide in application of this concept uh, would simply, you know, in determining whether it's a boulder or a pebble, would simply be to think, would I feel comfortable doing this in my church body? Now, this is not absolute, but if you would not feel comfortable doing it within the church body at a church picnic or any other activity, then it's most likely a boulder. Now, I think this is a serious matter, uh, this stumbling block stuff, for consideration by all of us, no less so than this. In Matthew 18, when Jesus was before his disciples, they brought to him one of these kind of you know, self-centered questions. Master, who will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus, always the teacher, brings a visual aid, a child up in front of them. And, and says, as truly I say to you, unless you're converted and become like children, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. But woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. Throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Then in the passage, Jesus makes it clear that young Christians, perhaps weak Christians, regardless of age, who have tripped over our boulder is just like a lamb lost from the flock. And that lamb gets special attention from the shepherd until found.
He concludes, So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Seems to me Jesus, anyway, takes this stumbling stuff seriously. We've got to ask ourselves, when I am free in my conscience to do something, is the open exercise of my liberty really worth the possibility of causing someone to stumble, whether a child or anyone else who is vulnerable or susceptible to fall? Let's pray. Lord God, uh, this is a difficult matter with which to deal and how to apply in our lives. Sometimes it's very difficult to discern even between matters that are significant and those that are not. But Lord, I pray that you would give each one of us here the ability to be more sensitive about these matters to be aware that we are beacons. At least we reflect your light and that the example that we set for others can often be misunderstood even when we have no intention of leading someone astray. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to live our lives in liberty and freedom with joy, with enthusiasm, but to be aware, Lord, of those around us, especially those who are weak, those who are young, those who you have a particular concern of. We give you the praise, Lord, and we pray that you would be with us now as we worship you in spirit and in truth and be with each one of us, Lord, as we try to apply these truths that you've given us through your word in our day-to-day lives. We ask all these things in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen.